John chapter 5, starting in verse 37, is where we are this morning. Verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him who, whom, you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scripture because you think in them that you have eternal life and that it is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Now obviously we've been working our way through this portion of scripture for a bit of time now, I realize that. John continues to give evidence to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's uh, gospel again and the person of Christ actually continues to give witness to the reality of who he is, that he's God come in the flesh. And I cannot overestimate uh, how important it is to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is because the short truth is believe in him and be saved or reject him and spend eternity in hell forever. It is absolutely that simple. Believe him, be saved, reject him, spend eternity in hell for that error. Because Jesus Christ is God's only provision for reconciliation, for forgiveness of sin. No one can be saved who does not believe that Jesus is God. The, because eternal life only comes through him, through Christ. Now, in our study, Christ's enemies get it. They understand very clearly that he's repeatedly making this claim to deity. Again, that's the theme that starts back up in verse 17 and runs all the way through the end of the chapter. The fact that he, by his own testimony, Jesus is equal with God in nature, equal with God in work, equal with God in power, equal with God in truth. Therefore, consequently, he's equal to God in worship and honor. And essentially, the religious leaders do not believe him. Verse 16 says they're persecuting him. Verse 18 says they wanted to kill him. Verse 40 says they're unwilling to come to Jesus that they might have eternal life. That's exactly what John said at the beginning of the book. John 1 and 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So Jesus is claiming equality with God, and at the same time, the religious leaders are claiming or accusing him of blasphemy. Now, whether or not Jesus made that claim to be the Son of God, that is not an issue, as some people say. I think I said it a few weeks ago. Some people say, well, he claimed to be the Son of God. No, he's made very clearly the claim that he is God. He's affirmed that over and over again publicly. So that's why the religious leaders over and over again are persecuting him, and they want to put him to death. They want to convict him. But again, they're charging him with blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. But again, the question with Jesus is, is his claim true? How can we know for sure who Jesus really is? Is there any evidence? Is there any testimony? And again, the answer to that question is overwhelmingly yes, as we've seen in our study. So I've used kind of an analogy. I said it's somewhat of a courtroom proceeding. Jesus is on trial, if you will, and he's presenting witnesses. He's got three witnesses. They're all arranged by God the Father to bear witness or give testimony to the reality of who Jesus really is. John says in 1 John 5, 9, if we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he is born witness concerning his son. So if you want to listen to testimony, John's saying, listen to the testimony of the Father. If we receive witnesses from, or witness from men. Well, on a very uh, normal day in and day out basis, we do that all the time. We accept the testimony of fallible men all the time, even men we don't know. Go to a restaurant for example 
You trust that the restaurant has followed basic, uh, basic health procedures, right, uh, concerning the food. You go to the grocery store. You trust that the store has kept the foods uh, uh, from spoilage or contamination. You go to the bank, and you endorse the back of your paycheck, and you hand it over to a person behind the counter. You have no idea who it is, and you're trusting that they're going to put that into your bank account, right? We trust men all the time. So if we're going to trust men, if we're going to accept the testimony of the witness of men, fallible men whom we don't know, why would we not accept the testimony that God the Father has given concerning his Son? Verse 31 of John 5 says, If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another, verse 32, who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. Verse 34, But the witness which I received is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So what he is saying there in verse 31 is, Look, I'm giving honest testimony to who I am, and not just myself, but there's another one who testifies in conjunction with what I'm saying. Verse 34, when he says that witness is not for man, that only leaves God himself, right? God the Father. Now, John's, or Christ's testimony in verse 31, again, he's not saying that I'm speaking a lie because he can't lie, he speaks the truth. But he's saying, look, I have cooperating evidence. I, I have more witness testimony to back up and give validity to my statements. And as I told you in this courtroom scene, if you will, there's three three uh, lines, three um, avenues of witness that the Father bears towards the Son. First, obviously, was the witness of John the Baptist. And then the Father gives testimony to the reality of who Jesus is through the second witness, that being Jesus' own miraculous power. And the third witness that the Father is going to use to bear witness to who Jesus is is God's own word. So three lines of evidence that is more than sufficient to prove the claim of Christ to deity, and then to oblige men morally to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God. Now again, remember, as Christ in his own words says, the whole purpose for him bringing forth these witnesses not to uh, just prove the reality of who he is, but verse 34 says, I say these things that you might be saved. I say these things that you might be saved because people need to come to a saving knowledge of the truth of who Christ is. Because apart from Christ, every man or woman are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead and under divine condemnation. Desperately in need of eternal life. Desperately in need of forgiveness of sin. And that only comes by way of forgiveness of sin. Uh, comes only by way of believing upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, for us, every time we have an opportunity to give testimony, every time we have an opportunity to bring a defense of the deity of Christ, it is not for the point of winning arguments. It should be for the purpose of winning souls, just like it was for the Savior. And you who are listening to me, whether you're in the room or you're listening to me on the, uh, 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 over the Internet, you can't remain neutral to the person of Jesus Christ. If you're still trusting in your own goodness, still trusting in your own righteousness, remember the testimony of Christ. He says, He who believes in him... Christ as Savior. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe him has been what? Judged already. You who are trying to keep good works, you who think high of who you are and what you do, hoping that you're going to do more good than bad at the end and then God might take that into account and perhaps you might be okay. You're putting confidence in a category that God doesn't even acknowledge. He who believes in Christ as Savior is not judged, period. He who does not believe in Christ as Savior has been judged already. 
and the judgment is guilty and the uh, antecedent or the following statement is because he's not believed, right? He's not believed in the name of the only begotten son. You have no choice. You have to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. If you've not repented, then you need to do so. You need to run to the Savior. Because again, you're in a desperate situation and it's a desperate situation to spurn God's offer of mercy and God's offer of love because the day of grace one day will be over. And if you receive or reject God's mercy, reject God's love, when you die, you will receive condemnation without mercy. John chapter 3 and 36, Jesus by his own words, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. That's it. You can say, well, I don't believe that. It's irrelevant. You better believe. You better get on your knees right now before God and beg for mercy and help him to open pray for him to open your mind to receive the truth before you find out the reality of what God says is true. Every word God says is true. And again, it's a warning because of God's kindness and his mercy to men to warn of the consequences of rejecting Christ. Now, we've worked our way through here in the context. We've worked our way through two of these witnesses. First one we did a couple of weeks back and uh, Jesus bore testimony of himself, and the Father bears testimony of himself, uh, of uh, the reality of who Jesus is, and he does it through uh, John the Baptist. Look back at verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If, he, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now just stop and think for a moment. I can't do anything on my own initiative. I don't seek my own will. Right? Just stop and think. If Jesus is claiming equality with God, which he is, if Jesus is doing everything he does not by his own will, but he submits himself to the will of the Father, therefore Jesus, when he bears witness of himself, he's not bearing witness by himself or independently from the Father. He's bearing witness in conjunction with the Father because they're one, right? Does that make sense? He's bearing witness with with the, the Father because they're in conjunction. So Jesus realizes that the individual testimony concerning himself, while not invalid... It is enhanced by more witnesses. It's made more believable. If, again, the truth is established on the basis of two or three witnesses. Because a man can go to the witness stand and testify the truth concerning himself. Now, that witness that he gives, that testimony he gives, obviously depends upon his character. If a man is known as a liar, if he's known as a manipulator, if he's known as a man who uh, twists facts to uh, serve himself, then you're going to have a hard time believing him. But if a man has impeccable testimony as Jesus does, then when he speaks, his testimony is believable. You might remember that at his trial, the Jewish authorities could not find any witnesses against him to charge him with any kind of guilt. You might remember that Pilate, in John 18, 38, when he examined him, after that examination, he said, I find no guilt in him. You might remember that through the New Testament, those who were most close with Jesus who spent three years with him, watching him in all sorts of situations, they all gave testimony to his sinless character. So the point in verses 30 to 32 is the self-testimony of Jesus is true. Because, again, he never acted apart from the Father, and the Father always bears witness to him, and he gives that testimony uh, through himself, and the Father corroborates that testimony about the person of Jesus. On top of that, verse 33, you have sent to John... He is born witness to the truth, but the witness which I receive is not from man. I say these things that you might be saved. 
He was a lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus' first witness, as it were, was John the Baptist. And However, uh, John the Baptist, we know, was sent by God, right? He was commissioned by God. Prophet sent by God with a supernatural uh, origin. Uh, the one whom the Jewish religious leaders uh, could not and did not deny the fact that he was a prophet sent from God. He came into the world with an express purpose to identify Jesus as the Messiah, and that's the very thing that he did very faithfully. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's a truthful man. John's a faithful man. John's a, a righteous man, a man committed to truth, a man who's committed again to righteousness, so much so that it cost him his own life as he was persecuted and imprisoned and then murdered by wicked Herod. But ultimately, the Jewish religious leaders rejected his testimony, even though everything that John the Baptist said about Jesus was true, even though everybody knew that John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God, everybody knew he was one who testified to the truth, the Jewish religious leaders still rejected his testimony and still refused to believe him. So again, Jesus draws attention to the witness of John the Baptist, not for Jesus' own sake, but for the sake of the hearers. Again, why is Jesus doing this? Verse 34, so that men might be saved. So that people are saved, because people are saved by believing in Jesus. And again, that's why God the Father sent John the Baptist into the world, to be a witness, to give testimony, to help people believe, to help men believe and be saved concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I told you, John the Baptist's ministry kind of explodes on the scene and then kind of rapidly diminishes when he confronts people with their need of personal repentance from sin. He just kind of comes and goes. And if no one else remembered John, Jesus certainly did. He said he was the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus honored him because John the Baptist honored Christ. J.C. Ryle aptly says this, That truth should not be overlooked. These truths are written to teach us that Christ cares for his believing people. He never forgets them. Forgotten and despised by the world, perhaps, they are never forgotten by the Savior. He knows where they dwell and what their trials are. A book of remembrance is written for them. Their tears are all in his bottle, as it says in Psalm 56, verse 8. Their names are driven on the palms of his hands. He notices all they do for him in this evil world though they think it is not worth notice, and he will confess it one day publicly before his father and before the holy angels. Jesus Christ never forgot John the Baptist. He was a faithful man. The second line of evidence that the father bears witness concerning the person of who Jesus is was his works. Verse 36. But the witness which I have is greater, right? John the Baptist gave a tremendous witness. But the witness which I have is greater or weightier, as it says in the NIV, than that of John, for the works which the Father has given to me accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, we spent a good deal of time on this point, uh, that Jesus' miracles express not only his compassion for the needy, but they serve the main purpose of uh, displaying his deity, his divine power, his divine glory. And when Jesus came onto the scene, he did those things that no one else had ever done in human history. He healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. He healed them all. He virtually wiped out disease in all of Palestine. So his miraculous power was undeniable. So numerous, so public that not even his enemies 
uh, denied his miraculous power, but instead the Jewish religious leaders blasphemously attributed them to Satan in Matthew uh, chapter 12. So again, Jesus' miracles were so known, so numerous, that they demanded an explanation. And again, no natural explanation is available because they're not natural, they're supernatural. It's the supernatural power of God working through the person of Jesus Christ. It's undeniable. But the unbelieving remain unbelieving. Right? The unbelieving remain unmoved by truth, even when it's presented in front of them. So again, just stop and think about it in the context of our story. When Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, top of the chapter, instead of investigating the miracle, the religious leaders just merely accused Jesus of healing on the Sabbath, which just proves the hardness of their heart. The final miracle that Jesus performed before he entered in Jerusalem the last uh, week uh, was the raising of Lazarus. It's found over in, in John 11. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And again, instead of rejoicing at the miraculous demonstration of divine power that was undeniable because the fact was everyone there knew that Lazarus was dead, and not only was he dead, but he had been in the tomb for four days. Instead, the religious leaders didn't want other men to believe in that power. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11, verse 47 says, Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, then all men will believe in him. And the religious leaders certainly couldn't have that. So instead of acknowledging the divine power of Jesus, the religious leaders decided they were going to kill him. They were going to kill him rather than believe. John 11, verse 53. From that day, they planned together to kill him. And the religious leaders not only wanted to kill Jesus, they even wanted to kill Lazarus, the one who had been raised from the dead. John 12, verse 10. The chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Why? Because they feared that men might actually believe that Jesus was the Christ, that he was indeed the Son of God. Which, listen, all men must do if they want to be what? Saved. If they want to inherit eternal life, if they want to be free from eternal judgment and eternal condemnation, which again points out the fact that false religious systems are not just in error, they are satanically evil. They are satanically evil because false religious systems keep people away from the truth and false religious systems keep people away from Christ. Therefore, false religious systems keep people under God's wrath and damned eternally. And any religious system or teacher that points men away from the sufficiency of the Word of God and the sufficiency of the person of Jesus Christ is not some kind of minor error. It, in reality, is a doctrine of demons, a servant of demons. And that man, that ministry, that teaching has to be exposed because there's no salvation apart from believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. Now again, in the day which Jesus lived, no man ever denied the miraculous power of Christ as many people do in our day. Many unbelievers, many so-called quote-unquote liberal scholars seek to deny the miraculous power of Christ. Some of them questioning the validity of the biblical accounts other claiming that the miracles were nothing more than delusions or just frauds. And of course, the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed was his last one. What was his last miracle? Do you remember? 
How about raising himself from the dead? That's a pretty big one. And it's very common that men like to deny that one. They like to deny the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ, but I've told you many times from this pulpit, only a fool or the devil himself would deny the, resur- the physical resurrection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Because we're all under the judgment of death. Have you noticed there's a whole lot of people dying? The news media is really into it. Well, at least they were a couple months ago. Not so much now, but so many people are dying. So many people are dying... Do you ever hear anybody step up and say, hey, we've got to find a solution to this? Other than accuse other people? We've got to find a solution. I wonder, is there anybody in the history of mankind who's ever defeated death? And again, you're not going to hear anybody on a public platform, public media, politician, on the television, proclaim the answers found in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who ever defeated death. Only a fool or the devil himself would deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we're all under the judgment, the condemnation of death. We need somebody who has gone before us. We need somebody who's gone before us and defeated our last enemy, and that is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the last enemy being death. Jesus Christ has triumphantly defeated death. And he's promised to raise up anyone who believes upon him so that they too might have ultimate victory over sin and death through him. So again, that witness of the reality of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, unquestionable. Four days, undeniable fact. Many people saw it. Many people gave testimony. And the fact that the religious leaders never cast doubt upon that reality. Listen, they never. you read the text of Scripture. It doesn't say they were going around saying, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. They never denied the reality that that happened. Right? All, all they wanted to do is they wanted to kill both John or both uh, Jesus and Lazarus. Therefore, that proves the historical fact is accurate. It proves the reality of the fact. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It really happened. And again, Jesus' own physical resurrection really happened. It's historical truth. It testified, Paul says, by himself and by more than 500 brothers at one time, most of now who are still alive, as he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. And the gospel writers continue to give uh, evidence towards Jesus' miraculous power, providing details that, uh, again, in the way that they provide these details, suggesting that they're not trying to twist the truth, but they're just giving faithful testimony. And to reject them and to reject their testimony about the miraculous power of Christ is, again, contrary to the uh, manner in which we, even in our own legal system, receive witnesses. Man saw something, he goes to the witness stand, he swears under oath, this is what happened, right? We receive that testimony. And when we don't receive that testimony, it shows that there's a bias, a perverse bias against the truth, a perverse bias that underscores belief, unbelief. A perverse bias that underscores unbelief. It's interesting, there was a man named Simon Greenleaf, I don't know if you've heard of him before, but he was the founder of the Harvard Law School. He wrote a three-volume treatise on the law of evidence, <coughs> which still serves today as the foundation for legal a practice in America. And he set, like many have done historically, he set out to disprove uh, Christianity. And he was going to apply the rules of evidence uh, to the four Gospels. But he ended up not refuting Christianity, but coming to accept the claims of Christ. And he becomes a Christian himself. 1847, he writes a book entitled An Examination of the Testimony of the Four Evangelists by the Rules of Evidence Administered in the Courts of Justice. He was especially persuaded by the way in which the disciples proclaimed to the entire ancient world the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to which they claimed to be eyewitnesses to the point that it even cost them their own lives. 
right? You realize that historically? For proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, those guys didn't get a big pat on the back and a, a TV interview and a book deal, right? They're all persecuted. Greenleaf says this, their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public uh, tribunal. The laws of every country were against the teaching of the disciples. The interests and the passions of all the rulers of great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Uh, Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecution, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel death. Yet, this faith they did zealously propagate. And all of these miseries they endured, undismayed, nay, rejoicing. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of like heroic constancy and patience and unblenching courage. It is therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths that they have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had they not known this fact as certainty as they knew any other fact, end quote. These men, these men just stepped up and proclaimed the truth. This is what happened. The overwhelming evidence, the overwhelming credibility of the evidence uh, uh, of the witnesses who are willing to sacrifice their very lives, again, compel us to believe that everything we read in the Bible is true about the miraculous power of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The compelling evidence of who Christ is and what Christ did during his own time, likewise, we are compelled to believe that today. What did he do? He had the power of sickness. He had the power of disease. He had the power over the natural realm. He had the power over the supernatural realm. He had the power, power even to uh, forgive sin. He had power over death. There had never been anybody like him on the face of the planet. That's why when Jesus says in verse 36, but the witness which I have is greater. The witness that I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, again, the works that Jesus accomplished when he was here on the flesh were not just what he thought by his own assessment was something that he had to do, something that was needed for the time. But look what he says. They were given to him by the Father for him to accomplish. So, again, in his miraculous demonstration of his power, he's just carrying out the Father's will. And, again, the works were no ordinary works. There were works, again, that nobody in the history of mankind had ever done. They were the Father's works. And if they're the Father's works, and they were, they give testimony, again, to the validity of their divine origin which again proves that Jesus is not just a mere man, but he's one sent from the Father. Perfect God, perfect man, demonstrating his power, demonstrating not only that, but God's tremendous compassion and mercy towards men. Everything that Jesus did, even the miracles, were not just to display the power that he had as just a mere proof of his deity, but it was to inspire faith for those who saw those signs uh, and again, to encourage men's heart to see the compassion, the mercy of God. And again, no one can ever claim that unbelief is justified by a lack of evidence because evidence is everywhere, if you want to believe. Again, if you're listening to me and you're not willing to reckon seriously with the testimony of the miraculous power of Christ, then you're displaying the same kind of hardness of heart, the same kind of spiritual blindness that those who falsely accused him and put him on the cross, did. Put a mark right there so you can come back to it quickly, but I just want you to see a story that I think is kind of interesting back in Matthew. Matthew 20. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. I'm just going to basically read through it. 
But Matthew chapter 20, there's an account of Jesus healing two blind men. And I pick it up in verse 29. As they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Verse 30, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want, you, we want our eyes to be opened. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Now, it's a remarkable story, obviously not just for the divine power on display by the person of Jesus Christ, but you have these two men who are in a dire situation. And again, I don't think that we can, one, understand the depth of the problem that these, have, these men have unless you experience personally blindness, and two, unless you experience blindness in the time in which they experience blindness because there's not a whole lot of help. I don't think there was a whole lot of recognized crosswalks and audio helps for people who are blind and for other people around them to know that they're blind and watch out for them in the crosswalk, etc. and so forth, all right? No white canes and little red tips and all that kind of stuff, right? It wasn't those kind of helps. And most of the time when people had these kind of eye diseases in this time, they weren't just blind, but they had perhaps oozing masses of stuff coming out from their eyes. So this is an issue. So you got two blind men. They're in a dire situation. They're in great physical needs. And guess what? They're beggars. And they've just been rebuked by this callous, cruel crowd. Uh, these men who uh, see these blind guys as nothing more than annoyance. So it's a demonstration of divine power, but it's a story of great faith in Jesus because they believe that Jesus can provide for them what they need. So they hear that Jesus is coming by and they repeatedly cry out with a loud voice, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us. Lord, have mercy on us. And I think they're screaming out at the top of their lungs. They need to get his attention. They got one shot, as it were, and they need to get his attention. Lord, have mercy on us. And mercy is God's unmerited kindness or God's goodwill towards the miserable, towards the afflicted. Mercy really is God's love in action. And it's God's love in action that flows towards those who are in a desperate situation or desperate condition. And most certainly, as the Bible displays over and over again the character and the nature of God, it reveals him as a merciful God, a compassionate God. Remember to Moses, Exodus 34 and 6, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate or merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's what God revealed himself. Well, that's how God revealed himself to Moses, and that's how God wants us to, to know him uh, for us to understand who he is. He is the tremendously compassionate God. He is tremendously merciful. He is tremendously and infinitely good, kind, benevolent. He is the God of love. He is the God of grace. He is the one who welcomes the desperate to come to him. He is the one who wants men to come to him for mercy, to cry out for him for mercy, so that they might be forgiven, restored, after falling into sin. Mercy dwells in the heart of God. Mercy, compassion dwells in the heart of God and the heart of Christ. They desire to show compassion. They desire to show sympathy and pity. But the problem is with most men in their pride, in their self-sufficiency, they won't acknowledge their need of mercy. They won't acknowledge their need. 
Few men ever find themselves desperate enough in the condition of their own soul to cry out to Christ for mercy. Why? Because they're blind. They're blind to their own spiritual condition. They're blind to their desperate situation of their soul. That they're separated from God under his eternal condemnation. And he keeps freely offering over and over and over again an opportunity to receive of that grace and to receive of that mercy and to not face him in judgment. And he offers that freely over and over and over and over again. And men spurn that because they're blind. The religious leaders were that way. The religious leaders of Israel, they could never see. They missed completely the person of Jesus Christ. Blind to the truth, unable to see on a spiritual level, they miss completely who is standing right in front of them. God in the flesh. John chapter 12, verse 37, though he performed so many miracles and or so many signs before them, yet they were not willing to believe or they were not believing in him. John 15, 24, if I had done if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and the Father as well. Jesus says, look, if you hate me, you hate the Father. If you hate the Father, you hate me, right? Because we're, we're one. And that truth is the same as it is then as it is today, right? Just people that come around and say, well, I love God. I just don't believe that Jesus is anything special. I don't love him. No, if you don't love God, then you don't love the Father. If you don't love the Father, you don't love the Son. And it's a tremendously disastrous position for anybody to, to find themselves. Now, here in the story in Matthew 20, obviously, it's a, it's a physical blindness that's being addressed. But you know this in the Bible, metaphorically, the Bible often speaks of mankind's spiritual condition in that uh, same uh, phraseology, blindness. In fact, in just a couple chapters, in chapter 23 of Matthew, uh, the Lord is going to pronounce seven woes on the religious leaders of the day for their spiritual blindness. He says, among other things, he says, woe to you blind guides, blind fools, blind men, blind Pharisees. So, of course, spiritual blindness is caused by sin. And every man born into the world is blinded by Blinded to spiritual truth by sin, right? At the fall of Adam, he cast the entire race into spiritual darkness. And as I've told you often, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Only two. Do not buy this nonsense that people are trying to drag into the church that we need to divide up with all these different subgroups and colors of people's skin and ethnic backgrounds and etc. and so forth. It is a lie from the pit of hell. The Lord Jesus Christ has reconciled all men to himself through his own shed blood. There are no races of men. That is is, uh, 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 an evolutionary lie. You're either in one of two categories. You're either those who will never see the truth in the reality of God, or you're in the category of those who by grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, have had your eyes, your heart, your mind enlightened to the truth, and you understand who Jesus Christ is. That's it. Those are the only two categories. And those who remain blind to the truth are going to remain eternal enemies of God. Uh, Those who've been enlightened to the truth, who see the truth, can enjoy the intimate fellowship of God in Christ in time, and they will enjoy that intimate fellowship forever. And the deciding factor for the eternal destinies of all men, of course, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How you deal with him. 
The person who rejects Christ as Savior and Lord remains spiritually blind forever. The person who believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and confesses him as Lord is the recipient of spiritual sight as well as spiritual life. So sadly, the vast majority of people don't know that. Sadly, the vast majority of so-called pastors in this country are dragging junk into the front door of the church that can't do anything except separate and take people away from the reality of the reconciling power of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're dragging darkness through the front door and trying to put some kind of spiritual veneer on it of light, which is nothing, no lies of the truth. I guarantee you that. And that's all that is. The vast majority of people don't understand anything. The vast majority of people don't understand that they're blind, nor do they care. The vast majority of people, when they're offered sight, they refuse it. John 1 and 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. That's Jesus Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. John 3 and 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. Paul told the Romans, Romans 1 and 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. God has made himself clearly known, clearly seen through the creation. Therefore, men are without excuse, but their eyes reject the evidence. Blind to the truth, blind to the person of God, blind to the person of Jesus Christ, darkened in understanding. In fact, that's exactly how Paul described to the Ephesians the unredeemed. Ephesians 4 and 18, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. To the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 and 14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Men blinded by sin, men blinded by Satan, can't see who Jesus Christ is. And most of them don't care. Most of them don't want to. They continue in that state of darkness because they love their own sin. They continue in that state of darkness because of their allegiance to Satan. As they continue to persist to reject the light that God has out of his kindness sent into the world concerning the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. At some point, the Bible says that if men continue in that state, if they continue to reject then God will confirm their self-chosen darkness and blindness as a judicial punishment, and they'll never be able to see. But Christ is coming to the world to bring light, to give sight. Remember what he said at the very beginning of his ministry, Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free who are those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. John 8 and 12, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, I think all of Christ's physical healings, while they are literal physical healings, 
They're obviously a demonstration of divine power, divine compassion, mercy, without question proof of his messianic credential. I also think they're a, spir- a picture of spiritual realities. What do I mean by that? A picture of spiritual realities. Because I think every time that Jesus opened the eyes of someone physically blind, it was a picture of, he wanted, of what he wanted to do to the human heart. Right? He wanted men's hearts to see the glory of himself and the glory of his Father. I think every time that he gave hearing to the deaf, it was a picture of him desiring, when he opened those stopped ears, for people to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel. And every time he raised somebody from the dead, it was a picture of the fact that he has come to bring spiritual life and to bring forgiveness of sin by being the substitute for sinners. Because he's the only one who has absolute power and control over the physical realm and absolute power over the spiritual realm. As great as the miraculous power of Jesus Christ was and as compassionate as it was, every one of those people who received of the mercy and the compassion of God through Christ and received of his miraculous power did what? Died. Right? And it's only by having their eyes open, their ears open, to receive of spiritual truth that they could have life. Physical healings, as wonderful as it is, and especially, I'm sure, as wonderful it was in the ministry of Christ while he was on earth, he was more important, more concerned about their spiritual condition. He wanted them to believe upon him so they might have life. Every one of these physical healings, I think, was pointing to a spiritual reality, pointing to the compassionate heart of God, pointing to the, to the, the heart of God who reaches out to those who are in need. But again, he says, the witness I have is greater, right? It's not just a demonstration of power. It's a witness that I can have a concern for the souls of men. I have a greater witness than that of John. The works the Father has given to me to accomplish are the very works I do bear witness of me and that the Father has sent me. Yes, compassion on the physical realm, but much more. I do these things so that you might believe, right, and have life. Go back to to John, and I'll finish up real quickly with the third one. The third line of evidence, the scripture. Father bears witness to Jesus through the testimony of John himself, actually through Jesus' own testimony, then through the testimony of John the Baptist, and then through the testimony of Jesus' works. Now the Father is going to bear witness through the scripture. And these are all increasingly um, of value, if I can say it that way. This is the greatest of all testimony, verse 37. The Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you. That word abiding means remaining, residing, dwelling. The condemnation of Christ towards the religious leaders was because of their rejection and hatred of him, or because of their rejection of him, because of their hatred of him, they did not have the word, right? They didn't have the word in them. And again, that's evident by the fact, verse 38 continues, for you do not believe him who he sent. You do not believe him who sent. Again, look back at verse 37. The Father who sent me has borne witness of me. He himself has testified. Well, where did he do that? Well, verse 38. Again, you people do not have his word abiding in you. Verse 39, you search the scripture. Where did he give testimony? Well, it's in the Old Testament text, the scripture. That's the only Bible that anybody had in these days. The New Testament's still being written. 
So it's the Father through the Old Testament that gives witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 39, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life and these bear witness of me and you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. It's an amazing picture. Now go back to verse 37. He says, the Father who sent me. Now in the Greek it says, the Father who sent me that one. Meaning it's emphatic. The Father who sent me that one. That one has testified of me. And the word testified or born witness is in the perfect tense. What does that matter? It means it's in the ongoing, sustained uh, 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 vernacular, right? It, it's ongoing, sustained. What does that mean? Well, John the Baptist, he came and he left, right? John the Baptist, his ministry was for a season. The miracles of Jesus, they came and they ended. But he's saying, look, the, the testimony of the word, the word is forever. The word is ongoing. The word never ends. It always gives ongoing testimony to the reality of who I am, Jesus Christ. Again, the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. In verse 37, now some commentators think that, well, maybe that's just the two recorded specific instances in the gospel where the Father gave a, a verbal testimony to the Son, you know, at his baptism and at his transfiguration. And you hear a voice out of the heaven said, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, at the baptism, at the transfiguration, there's an additional statement, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Might be an option. But John doesn't record either of those events in his gospel. More than likely, that voice was heard of the Father, probably only heard by those in the direct vicinity. John the Baptist at the baptism. Only Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration. So that verbal testimony from the Father would be somewhat of an entirely private testimony and not something that was generally made known to the body of Israel, the nation of Israel. So some might suggest that it might be better and i would follow this line to take it in the context where jesus is mentioning god's word and he indicates or indicts the religious leaders that they study the scripture but they miss the point right that may be closer to what jesus is saying the father who sent me has borne witness of me the father's revelation of me from the beginning from the beginning of creation was pointing to jesus right and that revelation is contained in the old testament text of scripture fact of right after the creation adam and eve fall into sin god promised he's going to send us the seed of the woman he's going to send someone who's going to crush the serpent's head genesis 3 the fact that immediately god kills an animal and he clothes adam and uh, adam and eve as an object lesson of how the lamb of god would come and be a covering for sin the fact that god promised that abraham that through his seed and we know through the testimony the new testament that seed is jesus that all the nations would be blessed, Genesis 12. The fact that every uh, sacrificial system uh, uh, instituted in the law of Moses was pointing to one, the one final completed sacrifice that would come, that being the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews 10, who sat down once for all, right, having made purification. The fact that in the Old Testament, a great number of Psalms, such as Psalm 22, Psalm 110, point to Jesus. Isaiah 7, of course, the details of the virgin birth. The virgin who will conceive and bear a son. Isaiah 53 obviously speaks of the, the death of Jesus on behalf of the people uh, at the hand of sinners. The one who is despised, forsaken, a man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face, despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we're healed. There's the doctrine of substitution. Micah is going to be born in Bethlehem. The father who sent me bore witness of me. 
repeatedly, ongoing. All kinds of pictures in the Old Testament of the Messiah coming, the Messiah suffering, then the Messiah rising again, the servant, suffering servant of Yahweh. Again, God's only means to forgive sin because God is holy and just, but also gracious, compassionate, the God who has to punish sin. And the only way that he can punish sin and forgive sin and not completely blot out the sinner in his presence is by the way of a substitute. The one who he's promised to send. Again, all these Old Testament pictures of, of substitution, the Passover lamb, the innocent dying in the place of the guilty, sacrifices that were repeated over and over again in the Old Testament with no hope of um, them ever being finished unless one who would come and finally deal with sin, that one final sacrifice. And not only that, the Old Testament has tremendous pictures of the Messiah reigning, coming as king, coming to sit upon David's throne. The fact that he will come and he'll bring fulfillment of all the promises of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and New Covenant. Again, this great glorious kingdom detailed and described over and over again by the Old Testament prophets. In fact, right after the resurrection in the New Testament, Luke 24, Jesus is having a conversation with two disciples who are dejected. They're on the road to Emmaus. You know the story, Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself and all the scripture. The Father who sent me has borne witness of me. Now, the religious leaders had studied, right? They had studied the Old Testament Scripture, but they missed Christ. They missed Christ, and D.A. Carson points out this, that Jesus is going to give a damning indictment to these false religious leaders and along three, three uh, different lines. He says this first, You have neither heard his voice at any time. What does that mean? You've neither heard his voice at any time. Well, Moses heard his voice. Moses heard the voice of God, Exodus uh, 33. And Jesus, he speaks the word of God. The Jews don't hear God's voice in Jesus, therefore it follows they're not true followers of Moses. In fact, it's going to turn out that Moses is going to be the one who condemns these. Moses is going to be their accuser because they didn't believe Moses. Jesus said, look, if you would believe Moses, you would believe me, right? In verses 45 to 47. Second, he says, you've never, you never heard his voice at any time. Secondly, he says, you've never seen his form. Well, that's interesting, because back in Genesis 32, a guy named Jacob, who was renamed Israel, saw God's form. And since Jesus is the very manifestation of God in the flesh, and the Jewish religious leaders don't see that fact, that Jesus is God in the flesh, the condemnation by Jesus is they're not true Israelites. They're not true Israelites. They're not true followers of Moses. They're not true Israelites. Thirdly, Jesus says, verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you or dwelling in you. Well, Joshua 1, 8, Psalm 1, 19, 11, your word I have treasured in my heart, right? That I might not sin against you. These were men, Joshua and the psalmist, these were men who hid God's word in his heart. They were men who meditated on the word. They wanted to learn what God's word says so they wouldn't sin against God. They wanted to understand the blessings of lives that are lived uh, entirely focused on God. So since Jesus is the very word of God, John 1 and 1, and the Jews have no time for him, it follows that they neither share in the experience nor the blessing of Joshua and the psalmist. They don't know the truth. They've studied. It's pretty amazing, right? They've studied their entire lives and they don't know the word. A lot of these guys have memorized it. They studied it wrongly. They studied 
not to the fact that it pointed out to him who the word of God was when he came, right? Because when he stood right in their presence, they couldn't see him. They missed Christ completely. It's amazing that you give your entire life in the study of something and miss the, com- miss the main theme of the entire text of the scripture, but that's what they did. That's why, as I read at the beginning of our hour together, out of the book of Hebrews, God, after he spoke long ago in the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, but in his last days he's spoken to us in his son. Right? God has become flesh. The very word has come to dwell among men. The word that is revealed and explained, that, that physical incarnate word that came to reveal and explain God himself. John 1 and 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus Christ came into the world to forgive sins, but to explain God to men as he was God among men. Again, the Jewish religious leaders completely miss it. They don't believe, they don't receive him. means that all of their study was of waste. Wasn't understood, wasn't absorbed, wasn't obeyed. Boy, they pretend to have all kinds of reverence for God, right? But they blaspheme him when he stands in their presence. It proves that Christ's condemnation against them is accurate. God's word did not dwell in their hearts. God's word did not guide their their religion. They were blind guides, ignorant to the truth, ignorant and refused to believe him whom the Father had sent. If they'd really been familiar with the writing of the Old Testament, they would have believed when God stood in his presence, in their presence. But it just proves that they're not true believers of the true God. It just proves they wouldn't accept as Christ the Son. They wouldn't accept God the Father. They wouldn't accept the reality of who Jesus is based on the testimony of John the Baptist, based on the miraculous power of Christ, based on the Word of God. And sadly, that's not uncommon in the world in which we live. Stop and think about it. The world is full of cults and the world is full of Bibles. The world is full of Bibles. It used to be that Satan's strategy was to keep it away from everybody, have it locked up, put it in a language nobody can understand. And then after God, through godly men, decided, no, I gotta get the, we got to get the language out. And then the next strategy was give it to everybody. Make it so common that nobody cares. Everybody just stumbles over it. We have a world full of cults that teach lies. We have a full world full of Bibles that are never open. We have a world full of so-called liberal theologians that miss the point of the Bible and a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians that miss the point of the Bible. Do you realize we have a whole lot of people who have Bibles in their houses, in their homes, but they never read them? We have a whole lot of people who have Bibles in their homes who never read them. We have a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians who never open their Bible. The issue is not having a Bible in your house. The issue is having the Bible in you. John 8 and 31, Jesus was therefore saying to the Jews who had believed uh, in him, if your word abide, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. You have to abide in the word. Right? I mean, Jesus is condemning the religious leaders here because they're deaf. They're blind. They're hopeless gropers in the dark trying to take people with them. And again, sadly, there's a whole lot of people like that in the world today. People who have Bibles don't have the truth. People who are trapped in false religious systems, following false prophets, false teachers, false workers of signs and wonders, corrupt Christianity. I mean, again, in those systems, God is inaccessible to them. They think they're following God, but God is inaccessible. I didn't write Matthew chapter 7. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name cast out demons before many miracles? Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. The Bible says it's appointed a man wants to die and then comes what? Judgment. So you've got time, whatever amount of time you have. I don't know how much time you've got. You know, how many years God in his grace gives you. You've got that amount of time to figure out this person of Jesus Christ. Because what you refuse to believe in time, if you're a rejecter of the person of Jesus Christ, you will believe in eternity. I guarantee you. Because the Bible says every knee will bow. Take mercy. Don't face judgment. So a lot of people in the world have Bibles don't have the truth. A lot of people trapped. A lot of people don't know God, they don't know Christ, and they certainly don't know their Old Testament. And you know what? There's an ever-growing chorus of false modern teachers that are encouraging people to, quote-unquote, unhitch from the Old Testament. Well, why would they do that? Well, because they say we're living in a post-Christian world. Secularism is on the rise. Church attendance is a decline. There's an increasing hostility towards Christians, Christian values, Christianity. Therefore, in in light of the modern landscape, the modern uh, so-called teachers who are um, saying we really shouldn't talk about the Old Testament. It's just so far away, you know. Uh, if we keep going down that track, uh, we're going to lose our mojo, right? We're going to lose our relevance. So we should just consider unhitching our teaching from the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. If we just do that, we'd remove all these stumbling blocks from people, and people would be more likely uh, to, to receive our message. Of course, that's nothing more than a lie. A lie. Well, you say, that's strong. You always say such strong words. Yeah, I know but it's a lie. How how is that a lie? Well, because Jesus said that the Old Testament Scripture bore witness of him. Old Testament Scripture bears witness of him. And rather than from itching from the Old Testament, Paul says the Old Testament leads us to salvation. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3 and 24. 2 Timothy 3 and 16, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What scripture are we talking about, Paul? Well, uh, the only inspired scripture that they had in the complete total was the Old Testament. Because again, the New Testament was being written. Hebrews 1, God, taught, God in past times spoke through prophets in many ways and many portions. Right? God speaks to men through the Old Testament. And over and over again, you see in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord said, the word of the Lord said, right? The, Lord, the word of the Lord came, right? I mean, over and over again, that's how he testifies. The Jews have the Old Testament. They affirm that it's God's word. The Father who sent me is born witness of me in the Old Testament scripture. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Again, and simply, you don't know truth. You don't know God. You don't have his word abiding in you, for you don't believe him whom he sent. I mean, you claim to believe, but you don't have the word because you don't believe me, the one whom God sent. Jesus says, look, the reality of who I am is obvious. John the Baptist proclaimed the truth. The miraculous work I performed proclaimed the truth. And you know what the, the false religious leaders did? I told you this earlier, I think. They attributed his power to Satan. They didn't say he didn't have the power. He just said he did what he did by the power of Satan. Well, why in the world would Satan do that? Why in the world would Satan cast out Satan when Jesus cast out demons? Why in the world would Satan show compassion and mercy and grace and love towards mankind whom he hates? The whole idea is ridiculous. And as I've said often from the pulpit, sin makes you stupid, and these guys are beyond stupid. They're irrationally stupid. The rationality of the hardness of men's heart, the unwillingness to believe. You search the scripture, verse 39, because you think in them you have eternal life. These bear witness of me. 
Now, you search the scripture. Let me just make this point here. In, in the King James, it puts it like this. It puts it in the imperative. It's like a command. You search the scripture or search the scripture. But I really think it should be taken in the indicative. But the, the form is the same in the Greek, so context has to drive it. And I think it's best to not take it as a command because uh, it, this is not an instruction period. It's an indictment. And the word think, if you take it as a command, kind of messes the whole thing up. The word search is a very strong word. It's kind of like a lion prowling after its prey. And he's saying, you search the scripture, right? Indicative statement of fact, but you missed the point. And again, these guys were fastidious in handling of the word of God, right? I mean, they gave it great honor. They copied it uh, very carefully. Sometimes they'd write one letter down, throw that pen away, pick up another pen and write the next letter, right? Because they had so much reverence for the for the word. They had tremendous rules, regulations, but they didn't know God. Why? Because they avoided the Holy Spirit. Natural men don't understand the things of God, don't submit themselves to the truth of God when it's revealed in the very presence. Coming up with all kinds of bizarre interpretations. And again, sadly, we see a lot of that today. We see a lot of that kind of unbelief amongst those who are very academic. Those who pick up the word of God and study for academic purposes only. They end up in the same kind of tragic results. They miss the point of the scripture. Well, they know a lot. Perhaps they know a lot more than anybody else. And they think that knowledge leads them to life. And Jesus Christ says, I lead you to life. You search the scripture. You think in them that you have eternal life. But these bear witness of me. If you miss the person of Jesus Christ, you miss the point. If the Jewish religious leaders had been true followers of the true God, they would have accepted Jesus Christ as the son. They would have accepted on the testimony of John the Baptist. They would have accepted on the testimony of the miraculous power of Christ. And they would have accepted it on the word they said they were studying. Verse 40. They didn't. You're unwilling to come to me. Tragedy of the Jewish religious leaders. Tragedy of the modern day tragedy of the liberal so-called Bible studying student people who listen to sermons, people who achieve theological degrees, but they don't come to Christ. From the top of the chapter, I've been repeatedly saying, what you do with Jesus Christ, the most important decision you'll ever make. Dismiss him because of your pride. Reject him who is truth, and you'll pay that error eternally. Bow your knee before him in time. Humble yourself, receive of his mercy, cry out for that mercy, believe and be saved. And again, Jesus says all that he says in this portion of scripture so that men can come to that end. They come to salvation.